Let's try this again. We're back. It's like Zeke always finds the squeaky toys when we're recording. <laughs> Your favorite, favorite New York is New York. Which we love New York. Me too. No way. Were we, we together? We might have been together. <laughs> I have. Our Greek. And use our codes because you know Katie loves. I love the codes. Check them in the bio. So, Kat, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Uh, absolutely. So, um, I'm the owner of Best Kept Jewelry Concierge. And I help people buy and make really special pieces of jewelry for major milestone occasions, uh, like engagements, anniversaries, birthdays, holidays. Um, I partner with really talented people in the Diamond District in New York City. Um, I also work with suppliers and wholesalers all across the country. And, um, you know, my primary job is to make sure that we find the perfect piece of jewelry for, you know, uh, whoever we're shopping for. Awesome. So can you tell our listeners a little more about Best Kept um, and why a customer would come to you? Yeah. So I started the business in 2018. So coming up on five years now. Um, And when I started the business, it was uh, primarily focused on helping men um, find gifts for their partners or spouses. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I would say, um, the majority of my business still is working with men buying for women, but, um, you know, self-purchases have become, I think the fastest growing category I work in besides engagement rings. Um, and I started the business because, um, I had an awful, awful experience trying to buy myself a bracelet after I was promoted at work. Um, and at one point, you know, I was like weeks into the search, I had a million tabs open on a browser and I just felt like it should not be so difficult to spend money uh, <laughs> particularly because there are some it's not that there was a lack of jewelry it was just um very very confusing to understand why one piece was so much more expensive than another um you know oftentimes trying to buy a piece of jewelry online there aren't photos on the body so I had gotten burned in the past buying something that um, just wasn't to the scale that I thought it was um, so trying to understand again pricing quality, um, the, the best people to go to and trust. I found it really confusing. And I felt like if you could assure people they were going to get it right, that more people would buy jewelry. But I felt like it wasn't even the cost or the category that people were avoiding. It was just feeling like they weren't going to get it right in some way. So you briefly mentioned, you know, what you were doing prior to Best Kept and that you were, found yourself in sort of a pickle when looking to try to purchase something for yourself. So before Best Kept, could you tell us a little bit more about what it is that you were doing and, you know, how you then ended up coming to Best Kept and starting it? Yeah. So I was a management consultant um, after college. Um, I studied business in college um, and was a consultant. So I am not from the jewelry industry um, at all. Um, the jewelry industry is notoriously very insular. Um, lots of second, third, fourth generation uh, right. family businesses. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, in general, people are kind of like wary of outsiders. Um, so as I was breaking into the business and trying to build relationships, um, the most common question I got was absolutely like, why would you want to go into jewelry? Uh, <laughs> um, so 
yeah, I have to say it was a huge career shift. Um, but the the thing that was always there for me is I'd always loved jewelry. Um, it was a great passion of my grandmother's. And so I got my love of collecting from her. And I think a lot of my style and kind of sensibility from her. And so I had always loved jewelry and I'd always wanted to work for myself. Um, so at the time I was starting the business, I mean, it was only five years ago, but this was very much still like the girl boss era of um, like, uh, Emily Weiss at Glossier and, um, you know, there were some major, major company and like a lot of these, you know, big time women on the cover of Forbes kind of thing. Um, so I found that very inspiring, but I think my first year in business, I kind of realized instead of having a gigantic team and raising millions of dollars that I could run a really kind of small, but mighty and very profitable business, um, doing my own thing. Now with what you've learned, what would you say are some staples that you feel like every woman should have in her jewelry collection? Yeah, I always love jewelry. And I wonder if you guys can relate to this, but you know, one of the great things about jewelry is um, if you're five pounds up, if you're five pounds down, it still fits nicely. Right. <laughs> so, uh, so woman to woman, I think um, there's, you know, something just very true about that uh, versus, you know, your favorite pair of jeans or a dress. Um, so that I think just like loving a piece of jewelry in that way has always been a constant. Mm-hmm. Um, despite not coming from a jewelry background, I, I had like a real sense of style when it came to my jewelry in a way that, um, listen, I love clothes, but like fashion isn't my thing in the same way that like I think I can really style jewelry. Um, So it was a little bit of a sort of skill and appreciation that I had always had. Um, In terms of pieces I think every person should own, I'm all about kind of slowly building a collection over time. I think what's become much more fashionable in recent years, and I think the trend is only continuing this way, is... um, you know, I really meant, believe that jewelry is meant to be worn. So more everyday pieces, I, I'd right. much rather, unless you have a vast collection, I'd much rather see you start with really fantastic everyday pieces that you can wear all the time, perhaps layer or add to. Um, but, you know, I think back in the day, people would start with these like major investment pieces that they would wear to weddings or black tie events, um, much more of like a society thing. But um, the world itself has become so much more casual. Um, and I love seeing women investing in pieces for themselves that are more everyday. Um, I think an everyday pair of studs is really important. They don't have to be diamond studs, but I call it like a substantial stud. Um, so something that has a little bit of style and that you can put on essentially with any kind of outfit. Um, I think every woman should have a great pair of hoops um, Mm -hmm. as we think about earrings. Um, I think um, layering necklaces for everyday wear um, are really important and something that um, you can just feel like really confident and good in. Um, And, you know, I think it it can be tempting to want to go with um, something gold plated or gold filled. But I think um, particularly for something like an everyday necklace, if you're going to shower in it, if you're going to shower in it, uh, sorry, sleep or shower in it. Definitely recommend going for, you know, 14 karat gold or 18 karat, um, just so that, uh, it stays nice with time. Yeah, um, rings, of course, a, a great signet ring, I think is a classic, um, a great watch. And it's, it's funny you say that about how like it's changed. The trend has changed a little bit to more of an everyday, look and something that can go from day into night because I was talking about it with my mom actually the other day when I have a bunch of cousins who are pregnant and we were all talking about push presents and my mom I was like what were your push presents and she was like your dad always got got me jewelry and she was showing me 
the jewelry that he had gotten her. And it was always like, it was these sets, like an earring, necklace, matching set with the bracelet that you really could only wear at a, a black tie event. Like you would never wear it every day. And then when I was talking to like cousins and friends, they were like, oh my God, I never would like think to ask for that or want that as a gift from a partner. Like you would prefer something that you can wear every day. Yeah. Push presents are so interesting to me. And it's, you know, one of the biggest parts of my business because a woman will want something and she wants it to be done right. So usually there's like a nudge, nudge, go talk to Kat. (laughs) Right. Um, But I love what you were saying about your parents because um, it's a fairly new term, but Mm -hmm. this, this, you know, concept of gifting something special to a woman who just um, had your baby, it has been around for hundreds of years. Right. Uh, There's something um, I think kind of like, classic and old school about it too. Um, but you're exactly right. The push presents I do are, they're really practical. A lot of the times it's like a stacker band or something to add to your left hand. Mm-hmm. Um, but, um, most of the time a woman has been thinking about it. She knows what she wants and it's almost always for everyday wear. Right. Yeah. I mean, the world definitely has become more casual. Like it's so funny that you mentioned that there's the, I wonder if you guys would agree with me on this, but there's the, the world's become more casual. Um, but also, and I think there's a direct correlation to just the rise of the importance of Instagram, but the world's also much more visual. And so our parents' generation will also tell you that engagement rings weren't as important to them. A woman always wanted something beautiful on her hand, but it wasn't as big a deal. Um, cause you and- weren't going to like Instagram the moment or like the ring even. Exactly. There could be an announcement in your local newspaper. You guys got engaged or got married, but like, unless you saw someone in person and they grabbed your hand, yeah. there was not this sort of, you know, big display of, of the ring. Um, and so, so I think, true. Um, and it's interesting for me, I, as I said, I work primarily with men and um, they really feel the pressure to, um, to get something they're proud of, not only that they hope their bride loves it, but mm-hmm. they also have this sort of understanding that it's going to be posted somewhere. Right. And like, yeah, they want to feel like a certain pride in it as well. Wow. That's so interesting. Um, Okay. So going back to, you had mentioned that you had a sense for kind of your own personal style. And I think you had mentioned it came from your grandma. What are some tips and tricks you can give to somebody who's trying to develop their personal jewelry style? Like between metals or um, just, you know, vintage, dainty, like what are certain things that you can kind of say to somebody to guide them when trying to develop this style? Absolutely. I think that there are some, there are a number of different ways to go into your jewelry box and find what you already have and kind of, kind of like revisit it with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. There may be something that someone gave you for, you know, a communion or, or some sort of special milestone when you were 14. And at the st- at the time, it just wasn't your style or you wore it for a while and then have since put it away. Sometimes you can take something you already have. And as I said, like see it with new eyes. If you're really kind of developing and kind of honing in on your style, I think uh, with necklaces, I encourage you to play around with different lengths. Mm-hmm. So if you have a pendant in your jewelry box, and again, like it just doesn't speak to you, try putting on a different length chain. Um, it can really transform not only the look, but how you feel in it. So when it comes to necklaces, um, play around with different lengths, depending on your build, a 16 inch chain is going to look a little bit different on me than it will look on someone 
who is very, very petite. Um, so definitely play around with different lengths. Um, I think there are some like amazing jewelry accounts on Instagram, obviously. Um, and, um, other places to look online where you can just get like really great inspiration. Um, I think for most people who are just starting, um, buying their, like their first investment piece, like their first piece that they feel like I'm really buying for myself, um, I think can be a little bit intimidating, but I encourage you to kind of go for it. Um, and to start um, and to kind of build from that first piece um, because it it can be really empowering and really fun to not only build a collection, but feel like your style is evolving at the same time. Yeah, that is fun. I mean, I personally have always loved jewelry. I know Mars has too, but like to think of it this way for somebody who's just starting to get into it um, or somebody who's just super excited, like you had mentioned, you were buying your like promotion piece. I think it's also like besides the besides people having their own sense of style like you said something is going to look different on you than it will on someone else and I feel like like I'm Mediterranean so I have very olive skin and I always liked the way gold jewelry looked on me but I do like silver jewelry and I'll mix metals but I feel like then you find someone else who feels like silver looks better with their skin tone so I think it's it's not only what you think looks good on you, but then also like what your personal style is. Do you like something daintier? Do you like something chunkier? Um, yeah. Absolutely. There's kind of like your core personal style that will evolve with time, but like there's yeah. some commonalities. And then I think there's also, it's okay. You know, my personal jewelry aesthetic is pretty classic and the pieces that I work on because they're milestone pieces, oftentimes they are classic pieces that you want to invest in. Um, but I think it's also okay to like every once in a while follow a trend. Um, yeah. Rose gold was really, really big. Yeah. Uh, and you're seeing less of it now. But to your point about skin tones, there are some skin tones that just that sort of warmer rose gold looks so gorgeous against. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, things come in and out of style and you absolutely see rose gold, but not um, kind of in the same way you did even, you know, three or four years ago. Right. That's yeah. That's so true. That's such a good one to kind of call out. Um, okay. So picking out the perfect engagement ring. What goes into it? What are some things like that the shopper needs to know going into it? What are some of your first questions when a customer comes to you and is like, I need some help? Absolutely. So I think um, the buying process for engagement rings has changed quite a bit. Um, Now I think more and more um, both partners are involved in the process, but if uh, if a person looking to propose comes to me, I'm always asking, have you and your partner tried on rings before? Has, has she indicated what she wants? Do you have, a, you know, have you spoken to her sister or mom or best friend? Is there someone that you need to be speaking to? Um, because they're, listen, I have some brides that are like, this is exactly what I want. I want it on a two millimeter band and <laughs> put it and in a box. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think there's nothing wrong with that. And I think you, in all instances, really need to honor the bride or whoever is going to be wearing the ring because mm-hmm. um, ideally she's wearing it every day for a really long time to come. Um, so feeling like um, it's, as I said, in five years in business, maybe there's been two rings I've done where um, the person he was proposing to had no input at all. Uh, that's become very, very uncommon. Wow. So just getting a sense of like checking in with your partner. Um, if you guys haven't tried on rings together, sometimes 
um, a, a girl will go with like a work colleague during lunch. Um, so oftentimes, um, <laughs> there's, there's somebody. more recon, um, than maybe he even knows about. So feeling like, um, even if we don't have the exact specifications of what she wants, feeling like he's been given a little bit of direction, I think is really important. Um, the next thing we'll talk about is setting a budget. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something, of course, that's very, very personal. Um, I can give someone guidance on, you know, broadly what range we should expect to be on based on what they're looking for. Um, but I think a huge job, part of my job is really honoring someone's budget. And the goal is always to maximize your budget um, to make um, it go sort of as far as possible. Um, and then I also like to understand, um, are we trying to maximize carrot size or are we trying to go for the best? quality possible, or more often than not, there's some sort of compromise. Um, But even if you have a a huge budget, there's always going to be some sort of push-pull between um, carrot weight and all the other factors. Right, right. Yeah, there really are so many factors that I think people don't even realize, like, go into it. Yeah. And one of the most simple ones that I always have the most trouble kind of getting an accurate answer on is ring size. Um, So I encourage all people to um, go to a local jeweler and get your your finger properly sized. This is something that everyone will do for free. Um, It shouldn't even be a question of there would be a fee involved. Um, Don't feel like you have to buy anything. Um, This is something that like a local jewelry store just sort of knows is, is part of what what they do in the community. Um, so getting an accurate ring size um, can save a lot of heartache and uh, is also uh, low key an important thing. Right. So what are your thoughts on factory made diamonds? Because I, I keep seeing them like whenever I'm shopping online and looking at jewelry, actually the way I came up is I was like looking at jewelry and I was like, wow, did diamonds get this cheap? Because yeah. it was like real diamonds. And then I looked into it and it was a factory made, um, designer, but what are your thoughts on that? And is it sustainable for something like an engagement ring? Let's say if you want to save money or will it not hold up the same way as obviously a real diamond would? Yeah, absolutely. No, you're hitting on all the the big topics in the industry. Um, so I think worth noting that there are two different um, kind of subcategories that it's really worth distinguishing between. So there are lab-grown diamonds, and then there are diamond substitutes. So something like um, cubic zirconium or um, uh, some of the other kind of like faux diamonds, uh, those are different than a lab-grown diamond. And I think what you're referring to are lab-grown diamonds. Yeah. Yes. And I, I've seen them a lot. Yeah. All over Instagram, the internet. Um, lab-growns are really, really interesting. Um And the reason is um, they have the exact same chemical composition as a diamond that was mined from the earth. So this is a, a, you know, a natural diamond is made using high pressure and high temperatures. So as a lab grown diamond, it's just, they're able to simulate those high pressure, um, high temperature um, uh, environments in a lab. So instead of a diamond taking, you know, several hundred years to grow, it can grow in a few months. Um, so uh, it has the exact same chemical composition as a diamond. Uh, a professional jeweler is unable to tell the difference between a lab-grown diamond or a diamond mine from the earth. You need a special piece of equipment. Wow. Um, so from that perspective, um, they're so much more affordable. It's, it's like very, very compelling because um, when you think about bang for your buck, you can get a much bigger lab-grown diamond than one mine from the earth. Um, the major trade-off or the other side of that is um, is resale value or sort of like thinking about it as a long-term investment. Um, I have a client who um, 
I did not do the ring, but unfortunately they are getting divorced and she wants to, she, I think in an ideal world would have sold the ring or sold the diamond just to kind of get that energy out of her life. Um, but she would be able to sell it for just a fraction of what they paid for it. So we're going to make it into like a great pendant and really transform it and, and make it something new for her. Um, but you know, listen, if you're, if it's something like diamond studs that you hope to wear every day and keep in the family and pass down to a daughter, and it's never going to, it's not even a thought that it would enter the the resale market again, then I think they can be like a really compelling, strong option. Um, I think if you're thinking of the piece more as an investment or um, something that you might want to upgrade with time, or, you know, if you ever needed liquidity or needed money and you needed to sell it, it's just where you, where you really get hit hard is, you know, in the resale market. Okay, interesting. Wow. So the difference really has nothing to do with like the whether call. it's a diamond or not. Yeah. Or exactly. whether people can tell the difference like this was from a mine or this was from a lab. It's more and just like if you want to, yeah, like you had mentioned, if you need it for to, to resell it or whatever. Yeah. And that's what makes it such an interesting conversation because as I said, I'm not a professional jeweler would be lying to you if they told you they could tell the difference. You genuinely need that is it. insane that's so interesting um it, yeah it's, it's um you know I've had a couple engagement consultations where um I think what they were looking for was just sort of outside their budget mm-hmm. um and so that that would be a time where I'm, I would introduce the concept of a lab grown diamond and there are some people who really connect with that and they get really excited and we're able to put them in like an insane e-color you know colorless diamond which is wild um, and then other people who um, don't want to have a discussion. It's case, it's case closed. Don't even mention it. She just, for whatever reason, would feel funny having something on her hand that she knew, you know, as I said, did not take hundreds of years to grow. Right. So it's a very personal discussion. Yeah. Um, but the reason why you're seeing it on Instagram all over the place and the reason why the prices are so crazy is um, there have been just a flood of suppliers. So when you think of just the regular de- business dynamics of supply and demand, there's a ton of supply. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's because they can produce it so much quicker than you can um, with natural diamonds. So um just from like a business perspective, it's been interesting to see um lab grown diamond prices have even come down the last few years because there are more people in the market. Wow. Interesting. Um, okay. So going off of what you mentioned earlier about how a lot of people in the jewelry business, it tends to be family business or generations and generations of families taking over their business. Um, what has it been like running your own business in New York, being part of the jewelry business and how have you built those relationships with your suppliers and the jewelers that you work with? Yeah, I would say building up those supply side relationships has definitely been um, one of the most important parts of building the business and and definitely one of the most challenging parts. I would say um, within just like the jewelry industry in New York, it's, you know, as I alluded to before, it's a little bit more of like an old school culture. Mm-hmm. They don't you know, you can't send them an email as the first time that you're corresponding with them. Um, you have to either pick up the phone and give them a call or, um, you know, boots on the ground, you know, more often than not go introduce yourself. Um, you're much more likely to get a good reception if someone introduces you versus you kind of just showing up and wanting to Mm -hmm. introduce yourself. Um, so, um, 
I think um, being patient and um, putting yourself out there. And um, as I said, like, I can't tell you how many emails I sent in the early days that didn't get a response. And I was so bummed out. It's not personal at all. It's just not, it's just not how a lot of these people like to do business. Um, so I think some of this can take time. Um, and then I also realized to really build a rapport and a relationship, I could call and say, hi, my name is Kat McCoy. I've got this really interesting business. Don't you think I'm adorable? And they're like, cool, but what talk, you know, money talks. And so to the extent I can call you and say, hi, my name is Kat McCoy. This is my business. I have a client looking for X. Um, right. So there were times when I would wait until I had a specific buyer or a specific project before approaching a supplier I really wanted to work with because we needed a starting point. Um, we needed to um, have something to like work on together to jump off of. Um, and then I think there's also been times where I have bought pieces or bought things for inventory um, just to start, just to kind of open that relationship. Um, because I think, um, as I said, money talks. And so um, to the extent you can, and it's, they don't have to be big, big purchases. It's just to the extent you can um, kind of show someone you're a little bit more serious through mm -hmm. a purchase, I have found to be uh, very, very impactful. Wow. So this episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Well, okay, with all of that being said, before we head into our rapid fire segment, what piece of advice would you have given, now knowing what you know, given yourself years ago when you first started? Uh, this is so practical, but um, I think it would be put yourself out there and put your face on camera years earlier. I think I've really fought um, Instagram content and fought, and I wanted to make it all about the jewelry and all about like my knowledge. But um, as I said, like we live in such a visual time and people buy from people and people connect with other people. And I think my own um, kind of shyness or hesitancy, um, you know, it took me like a couple of years to like really start marketing in a smarter way. Um, and that all has to do with confidence and just sort of putting yourself out there. Um, so I think I would tell her, um, you know, it's inevitable. You got to do it. Right. Um. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's like, I, feel, I mean, even us, like we went into the podcast space thinking this would only be audio and mm -hmm. you realize the demand for video because people want to see who's talking. They want to see your face. Um, it makes everything more personal. Yeah. Um, okay. So moving into some rapid fire, our rapid fire theme is diamonds. Um, okay. So which C is the most important when picking out a diamond? Cut, clarity, color, carrot. The jeweler's answer is cut. And that's not the shape of the diamond. That's a cut grade, which is assigned um, to the stone. So a round diamond will get a proper cut grade. Um, all the other fancy shapes will get a polish and symmetry grade. Um, a lot of industry speak just to say that if a diamond's cut really beautifully, even if it doesn't have the best color clarity, it's going to be gorgeous. You could have a D flawless diamond. And if it's not cut properly, it's not going to be pretty. Wow. I did not know that. Um, what is your personal favorite, um, piece of jewelry that you own or have designed? 
Mm. Um, my husband got a, this gorgeous, gorgeous Cartier orchid ring, um, for, I think my first birthday after we got married. Um, and he knew I wanted it because we went to Cartier just to try on wedding bands, knowing we probably wouldn't purchase it from there. I tried on this ring and I was like, I don't need a wedding band. Just get me this. Yeah. Um, he remembered, um, some, I was just saying, I, I like everyday pieces. This is definitely more of a special occasion piece, but, um, if there was a fire in the house, I would go back for this. That's what you're having. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Good one. Um, okay. Your personal style for jewelry, which you touched on a little earlier. Um, classic understated and just a little bit left of center. Um, I don't want to, I don't like things that are so, so, so on trend. Um, I also don't like things that are so simple and classic that you don't feel like the heart and soul of the person who's wearing it. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I would say kind of understated and classic, but with like a little bit of point of view. What is your like bestseller? This year, the petite diamond tennis necklace has been huge. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. I've seen that everywhere. Open. Um, everybody wants one. So I'm, when I'm sourcing gift recommendations, um, you know, 10 out of 10 times, this is a gift that's going to land. But also, depending on the care weight and size, it is a piece that you can buy for yourself and feel like a boss, but also not feel like, you know, you're not going to make rent that month. Right. So, right. <laughs> It all depends on your financial situation, but I think it can be a magnificent gift and it can also be such an empowering thing to buy for yourself. Yeah, I feel like everyone has been wearing them. Everyone, it's everywhere. Um, okay, your favorite stone besides a diamond? I gotta say, and this is like a newer thing for me, um, I have recently fallen in love with Tanzanite. Um, it is this like Ooh. vivid, vivid purple color. Um, and they, uh, they're gorgeous. Tanzanite, very underrated uh, gemstone. Yeah, I was going to say, got, I've got to look into that one. Me too. <laughs> okay, your favorite and least favorite engagement ring fad? Ooh, um, my, I'm hesitant to say I'm supposed to be Switzerland when it comes to <laughs> styles because I can help you, I can help you design and make anything, I should say. Um, but if, in the spirit of rapid fire, um, personally, I don't love a halo, um, like a, like a very big halo. I think like a thin halo can be really elegant. Um, but like a big chunky halo, um, always stands out to me a little bit, um, in not a good way. Um, so I'd say that would be my like least favorite trend. Um, favorite trend would probably be, um, really thin claw prongs. So I'm sort of like a student of prongs. I think it makes the biggest difference on the overall beauty of the ring. Um, so like a really, really nicely made thin prong is, is what we want. Okay. Okay. So then last one, kind of in contrast to that one, most classic style engagement ring in your opinion. It's still got to be the round solitaire. Um, mm-hmm. I think when people think of engagement ring, they're thinking of the Tiffany setting, which is a, a diamond that is a round diamond that's pretty high set up with six prongs. I think a four prong solitaire um, is just seven days a week. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. That's it for our rapid fire. Before we wrap up, because this episode is going to drop around the holiday season um, and there's probably some people wanting to buy gifts for themselves or their loved ones. Um, Where can everybody find you? And what is, I would say, your usual turnaround time from 
when someone comes to you with an idea or wants something to when you can get the product? Uh, absolutely. So um, best place to find me is on Instagram at best kept jewelry. Um, I also have a website, bestkept.com. Um, in terms of turnaround times, um, if we're looking for something within a week, it's got to be something that's in stock. So we'll work really closely together and find options that are readily available. Um, a more typical project usually takes anywhere between two to six weeks. Um, but I really love to meet clients where they are. And um, I find it so exciting to, I think a piece of jewelry as a gift is is so romantic. And also like, it's so, it, if you get it right, it really can be so meaningful. Right. Um, so even if you're on the later side and you're coming to me for a gift, um, I'm going to do everything I can to, to make sure that we're on time with it. Awesome. 